Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Long considered the most important of all organs, the human heart has fascinated artists and scientists for many centuries, and the cardiologist Vincent Figueredo has documented how societies, ancient and modern, have considered the heart and looking ahead where the treatment of various kinds of heart disease may be headed in the future. So welcome to you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And let's just go right back to uh, ancient societies who you know, may not have been able to treat heart disease in any way, but nonetheless saw the heart as very important. What, what were the perceptions of the heart at that time? So most ancient cultures, uh, probably all the way up through the Middle Ages, believed that uh, the heart was the repository of the soul, uh, of memory, reasoning, conscious. And this was probably because the ancient ancestors of ours knew that uh, a beating heart signified life. And when the heart was beating no more, a person was no longer alive. So this we now know is because emotions we feel from our brain reverberate in our heart. But to ancient ancestors, this interdependence led them to believe that that the heart was the repository of the soul. Yeah. And that would mean that the heart started playing some kind of role in religion. Yes, very early on, um, whether we're talking uh, India and connection with Brahman or the monotheistic religions, it was believed that the way one reached or met with God was through the heart. In fact, uh, early ancient Christians uh, believed, and again, this is right up through the Middle Ages, that the heart was a tablet and all of their deeds and misdeeds were recorded on the inner walls and upon death. God would read those tablets and determined where they were to go, heaven right. or hell. And, and presumably also, uh, you know, it was an easy way to kill people, right? So it, it would seem important because if it was attacked, it, it, it could lead to death. Well, again, this goes back to our uh, prehistoric ancestors. They knew that the best way to kill an animal was through the heart. And so they would harvest those animals and hold those hearts in their hand. We move up to ancient Egypt where they did embalming and uh, the heart was the only organ that they put back into the embalmed body, all the other organs being removed uh, and put in pots on the side, uh, the brain just being removed as nothing more than a phlegm producing organ. Uh, And it was the heart that supposedly went and was weighed in the underworld by Osiris to decide uh, whether a person could go to heaven, the field of reeds, or their heart would be consumed by a goddess Amit who would take their soul forever. All of these ancient societies. So if you go to India, for instance, uh, it was felt that the only way to achieve and and meet with Brahman was uh, through the heart. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because you'd think that a soft tissue organ like the heart would be very difficult to do any archaeology about, but you've just given an example from ancient Egypt where you, where you can actually. And, and, and so, you know, you can discover things 
from the ancient period through archaeology. Um, actually, that's interesting. They, uh, w if we talk about heart disease, uh, it was found when they did CAT scans of mummies from different societies over 4,000 years. In fact, um, atherosclerotic heart disease was quite frequent. And in the mummies that were estimated to be 40 years or older uh, upon death, uh, over 50% had atherosclerosis. So it turns out that heart disease is not a new thing. The fact that we now are fatter, we smoke more, uh, we eat inappropriately, we don't exercise. We thought that was the reason people had heart disease, but apparently they had it thousands of years ago as well. So there's some genetic predisposition in humans to have atherosclerotic heart disease. Well, that does go against all we're taught about heart disease being a modern problem and getting much worse because of the way we live. So what, what, what do you think was causing heart disease in terms of lifestyle back then? Well, two things I can think of first, the fact that uh, they ate and warmed by fire. So a lot of uh, smoke inhalation. Uh, the second one would be repeated uh, inflammation uh, infections. We now know that inflammation can result in atherosclerotic plaque development. When you go back to those ancient times, tell us about the Aztecs, because they, they, they had particular sort of beliefs and cultural practices, didn't they? They did, in fact. Most of the Mesoamerican cultures, the Olmecs, Mayans, Aztecs, believed that humans were created to nourish uh, the gods and sustain them. Uh, they believed that sacrificing hearts to the gods meant the giving of what is right or proper. They believed blood uh, and hearts um, held uh, what's called teolia, which is the immortal soul, uh, the knowledge, wisdom, and memory in a person. And those could if uh, sacrificed to the gods, feed the gods and keep them from leaving. And therefore the next day would come and the crops would, would nourish, you know, would do well. Yeah. Now then at what stage, I mean, can you tell, I suppose you won't be able to tell, maybe you can fr from the archeological evidence uh, before you get into literary evidence, when did this association of the heart with love come in? That's interesting. Uh, the, the real first evidence of that is probably in the 13, well, I would take it back. I'd say that the Greeks were associating uh, the heart with love. The ancient Sumerians associated the heart with life, thought it was the most important organ and therefore the organ of sacrifice to the gods, but it was really the Greeks that felt uh, it was an organ of love. A classic example of that is the story of Apollo approaching um, Eros, uh, Cupid in Rome, who was working with his bows and arrows, and Apollo told Eros to leave those weapons to mighty gods like himself. So Eros, angry, <laughs> climbed Mount Parnassus and unleashed two arrows. The first one was sharp and gold-tipped, and that pierced Apollo's heart and made him instantly fall in love with Daphne, the beautiful daughter of the river god Peneus. The second arrow was dull and lead-tipped, and it pierced Daphne's heart, which great, gave her a great aversion to love. Apollo pursued Daphne, who uh, tried to escape and pleaded with her father for help, and the story is he transformed her into a fragrant tree, which we now know as the laurel, to escape Apollo. Do you think that happened 
before the ancient Greeks as well. It's just that it's not written. And in a way, how could you know what people were saying at that time about, about the heart? I, th I think it was prevalent in all ancient cultures. In Egypt, uh, I think that they also believed that their emotions uh, were in their heart. And again, it was the, the reverberation of what was potentially coming from their brain when, you know, they saw that loved one. And so, you know, whether we're talking ancient Egyptians, ancient Greeks, ancient Romans, ancient Chinese, all of them felt the heart not only housed your conscious or soul, but was the where your emotions came from. And in Greece, where there was a split, um, some uh, philosophers, scientists like Aristotle believed that the soul was in the heart. Um, others like Plato believed that the brain was where we reasoned, but the heart was where our emotions and our courage were. Now, of course, that's right. Courage as well, isn't it? Uh, so, 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 yes, there's another sort of association. So life, love and courage. By the way, no, note that the word courage comes from heart, core. Um, and originally courage meant to speak one's mind by telling one's heart before it became more limited in bravery. Now, then you've got some absolutely fascinating stuff in your book about people taking on the characteristics of the person whose heart they get in a heart transplant and, and various sort of ideas like that, which are really sort of confusing to understand. But before we get onto that, I'm just sort of advertising those because it, it, is, it is interesting. But uh, just before we do that, I'd just like you to take us on from the ancient period. And if I gave you three names, perhaps you could just talk us through their sort of contributions, Galen, Leonardo da Vinci and Harvey. So Galen was, was the man who sort of advanced medicine, but also got medicine stuck, didn't he? Because he, 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 he became an authority for so long, there wasn't much progress after him for quite a long time. Yeah, so Galen was a Greek who went to Rome to make money and became quite famous and became uh, the physician of the emperor. He based a lot of his work, his experiments and his beliefs on uh, Aristotle, somewhat on Plato. Um, he believed the heart was what kept the body warm. He believed that the soul was there for a time before he took on Plato's tripartite soul, where uh, the brain had the reasoning, the heart had the emotion, and the liver had the appetite digestive uh, soul, the lesser soul. But what happened is the Catholic Church at the beginning of the medieval period believed that Galen and Aristotle's views on the heart, placing uh, the soul in the heart, were correct, and all the others were wrong. And uh, as the church dominated in Europe for a thousand years, it was believed that uh, Galen and, to a lesser extent, Aristotle were correct and uh, to try and say otherwise was sacrilege. So Galen's uh, views, starting about 100 AD, held sway all the way up through the medieval period until the likes of uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Andreas Vesalius, and William Harvey in the 1415 and 1600s that started to actually experiment with hearts, did the first accurate drawings of hearts, Harvey in particular experimented and demonstrated the heart was a pump that circulated blood through the body and in through the lungs uh, and that the right and left heart 
uh, were two separate entities and not, they didn't have pores between them like Galen believed. So Galen was extremely important uh, in history with regards to the heart because the Catholic Church said that his views were the only ones that should be believed, and they shut down uh, opportunities for advancements, looking at the workings of the heart and what the heart really was in the body uh, until the Enlightenment and the likes of uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Tell us a bit about what Leonardo da Vinci actually did. So he, he, he would l- look at corpses and examine the heart, draw the heart, understand what was, to some degree anyway, what was going on. So Leonardo da Vinci, like other artists of the time, would do autopsies on bodies to look at the, the, the skeleton, the muscles, and the skin, which would help them uh, paint and draw those better. But Leonardo da Vinci became more interested in what was further down in the body, which were the organs. And he started uh, making the first accurate drawings of organs, including of the heart, in thousands of years. The early drawings by you know, ancient Egyptians, Mesoamericans were lost to history until later, you know, 17, 1800s when they were discovered. So there were no accurate drawings until Leonardo da Vinci. And as an artist, he did beautiful representations of the heart. But he also uh, started doing a lot of experiments. Um, he studied heart valves to show that blood only flowed in one direction and how the heart valves closed. Um, he demonstrated that uh, the amount of blood in the body is finite and it has to be recirculated, whereas Galen believed uh, as you ate food, uh, blood was created in your liver and that was sent out to your body and you would have to eat a lot of food to um, pump as much blood uh, as the body does. The body in one day pumps 7.6 thousand liters of blood. So it would be hard for the liver to make that much. And and it was uh, Leonardo da Vinci who first found that the body, in fact, probably only has 5.6 liters of blood that it constantly recirculates. Are you saying he understood the circulation of, of the blood? I mean, I thought that was Harvey. So he understood that the body had to reuse the blood that was in it. Um, He did not make the connection that the arterial and the venous systems were connected. Harvey, though not the first person to understand the concept of circulation, ancient Egyptians and ancient Chinese, if you read their medical tracks, it does seem that they understand that blood recirculates, that blood leaves the heart, life forces leave the heart and come back to the heart. But he's the first one who experimentally demonstrated it. Mm-hmm. And, and just on uh, going back to something you said about um, Da Vinci's drawings, you said the ancient Egyptians also did drawings of the heart, but presumably they were far, far cruder. I mean, Da Vinci would take that on to a whole new level, right? Well, they were cruder, but they were accurate because the Egyptians actually held hearts in their hands and the Mesoamericans actually held hearts in their hands when they would sacrifice them. So their drawings, though crude, were anatomically correct. And those were lost to history until you know more modern times. After that, uh, the only 
descriptions we have of the shape of the heart were from people like Aristotle, Hippocrates, Galen. Because once you get to the, the European Middle Ages and the Islamic Golden Age, dissection was strictly prohibited. So they had to go on these ancient texts as to what the heart looked like. And it was described as shaped like a pine cone or a pear. Actually, I wanted to ask you about that, the shape of the heart and as it's depicted. I mean, we've all seen the I love New York, I heart New York uh, sort of slogan or logo, whatever it is. And it, but the heart's not really that shape, is it? Well, those ancient descriptions of the heart were that it was pointed at the top and was dented at the base and that it was three organs. And therefore, um, you could see how the, the crude drawing of the heart would look like a point at the bottom and uh, wider at, the, at the, the top with a dent in it. You know, people wonder where this came from. Was it the ivy leaf, which the Greeks associated with love? Was it the leaf of a Scythian plant, which was a contraceptive back in ancient Rome and Greece, which leaves look like that symbolic heart we know? Is it uh, the buttocks of a woman, the breast of a woman? There's lots of theories as to where that heart shape, that cardioid came from, but uh, it may just simply be that it was a, a development of a crude portrayal of the uh, descriptions of the heart because that symbol showed up probably in the 13 to 1400s in European art. Before that, it in drawings and paintings, it would be shaped like a pine cone or a pear. And then once that cardioid symbol became part of uh, art, it kind of went viral. And very quickly across Europe, that cardioid shape was used with people holding the heart by the point at the bottom. And then it widened with a dent at the top. That's so interesting. So it's one of those sort of really enduring symbols like the cross or um, you know, maybe a crescent uh, are, are things which have really endured as symbols. And, and, and the heart's up there with those, really, isn't it? Uh, it is so pervasive throughout our society, beginning probably again in the 13 to 1400s to now. And the, simple, the symbol has come to mean, you know, much more. Um, it's now a verb, thanks to I Love New York. Um, we have bumper stickers with I Love My Corgi, for instance. It's used on video games to show how many lives you have left. It's used on menus to show what are the heart-healthy options. So while physiologically we view the heart today as nothing more than a pump, in our society, uh, metaphorically, we associate the heart with love, connection to one another, health, lives, so it has many meanings. We see it in our art. We see it on our phones. We see it uh, in uh, you know, the drawing on the tree uh, where someone's etched, I love so-and-so, or, you know, put a heart with initials. Yeah, you see it everywhere. Yeah. And you have done for hundreds of years. So, so uh, just getting back to Harvey then, it, I'm a bit surprised by what you, what you said, because you seem to be implying he wasn't quite as you know, pioneering and innovative as, as perhaps he's sometimes portrayed, or, or is that unfair? I mean, it, did he really achieve a big breakthrough? I believe he did achieve an important breakthrough because he experimentally demonstrated that the arterial and venous systems are connected. 
um, and he surmised the existence of those connections, which are capillaries. In previous societies, there was descriptions of circulation in very uh, general words, um, whether we're talking ancient India or ancient China. And, and then people like Leonardo da Vinci, 100 years before Harvey, assumed that blood circulated through the body. They just didn't take the next step and describe why it happened. Let's get on to this uh, fascinating material you've got on the, 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 the nature of the heart and, and its connection to the brain. Because, uh, well, let's start with the basic position that many people might think there is there's really no connection. You know, the, the, the brain is what governs our behavior, and the heart is a purely physical organ that does a job of pumping blood around the system. But you're, you're not sure it's that clear cut, are you? Let me take a step back. The ancient character in Asian languages for the heart could be translated as either heart or mind. And that's what most ancient societies believe. Once we got to Harvey, who showed the heart was a pump that circulated blood around the body and really was nothing more than that, that's when society started turning to the heart is just a pump and the brain was where our soul and our conscious and our memory and our understanding and our emotions all were. But it turns out that the heart is transmitting as much signals to the brain as the brain is to the heart. And this is constantly occurring. So this new finding that there's a dynamic two-way dialogue between the heart and brain, this new area of research is called neurocardiology. And it turns out that the reason these two organs are con continuously affecting the function of each other is that the heart itself has a little brain. It has over 40,000 sensory neurons. They're sort of relegated up towards the top of the heart. And it's this little brain in the heart that enables the heart to sense, to regulate, and to remember. While the brain sends signals down to the heart to get it to beat faster, for instance, um, if we're you know, seeing our first love or we're about to get pounced on by a mountain lion, uh, it turns out that the heart is sending signals up to the nervous system, and it's to multiple areas in the brain the medulla, the hypothalamus, and most importantly, the emotion center in the brain, the amygdala. It also appears that the heart affects the brain through hormones and electromagnetic effects. So the heart is producing as much of the love hormone oxytocin as the brain does. Uh, and this affects uh, brain centers. The heart also is the most powerful generator of electromagnetic energy in the body. Uh, 60 times greater than the brain. And it's that electromagnetic energy that is pulsing regularly that affects brain centers. And that affects our emotional state, our ability to concentrate. A negative example of the effects of the heart on the brain can be seen in many individuals with panic disorder. These people often have unrecognized heart arrhythmias or abnormal rhythms. And this sudden change in the signals from the heart to the brain cause these people to uh, have their anxiety into increase and to go into panic attacks. And once it's discovered that they have these abnormal heart rhythms and they're treating, their panic disorders go away. I'm actually finding what you're saying quite difficult to, to, to get my head around because, you know, we, it's so firmly believed that uh, there is a very clear distinction between 
what the brain does and what the heart does. And you're saying there's almost like a second brain in the heart that has these similar functions. Perhaps, perhaps it would help to understand it if you said, what's the difference? So, so what's, what's the difference between the brain and the, and the, 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 and the heart and, and the little brain in the heart, as you describe it? I think most people will agree that the brain is now the king organ. It's the one that runs the show. But it turns out that the heart is affecting um, how the brain is working by sending it regular signals. For instance, positive emotions like compassion, appreciation can make the heart rhythm more coherent and harmonious. And this stable rhythmic pattern influences brain centers and it can alter things like pain perception, emotional processing, uh, and motivation. Other examples of that are coherence methods like meditation or mindfulness. Um, they work by bringing a more harmonious, regular rhythm. And these rhythms send signals up to the brain that results in, in the brain, quote, relaxing. Yeah, so what you're saying is that it's really down to rhythm. The main thing is rhythms in the heart and how they affect the body as a whole, including the brain. This, the harmonious, synchronous rhythm brings stability to the brain, basically is a simple way of saying it. Yeah. And, and t tell us about this phenomenon of couples dying close to each other. You relate that to the heart in some way, don't you? In a section called the broken heart syndrome, uh, it's interesting, since Harvey, we've dissociated emotions with the heart, but uh, emotions actually have a large effect on the heart, and sudden surges in emotions can break the heart. We call this broken heart syndrome. You look at older couples who have been together for a long time, and when one passes away, the other one inevitably passes away within the year. They just shut down and uh, we, we think this is a form of broken heart syndrome. And, and then, then there's this idea you've got that it, it which comes out of heart transplants. Whether someone who receives a heart, it, 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 whether it changes them in some fundamental way, what could you tell us about that? You know, there's always these interesting anecdotal stories of people who have had heart transplants and seem to take on the characteristic uh, characteristics of the uh, person from where the heart came. Um, and we do thousands of heart transplants every year now. This is a very routine thing. It's one of the reasons that we've come to accept that the soul and the emotional center is likely not in the heart. But, you know, can you imagine what ancient uh, Egyptians or ancient Christians would have thought of the idea of transplanting, you know, the soul into another person? So, yes, there is anecdotal data which I do bring up one in the book of a woman who was a dancer who received a heart from a young motorcycle riding teen. She took on some of his characteristics afterwards. She started walking like a man. She started eating French fries and onion rings, which she was previously a vegetarian uh, who uh, ate very healthy. It's an amazing story. I mean, do you think, what do you make of it? I think it's an interesting story. I have seen um, hundreds of patients in my own practice who are post-heart transplant, and they've shared no evidence of this kind of thing happening. So I'm not sure that uh, things are really transferred of one person's <clears throat> conscious or soul to the other in a transplant, but the stories are interesting and make you think twice about it. 
Okay, well, let's let's get up to the 20th century, uh, if you like. We're talking about um, the, the transplants, but there's all sorts of other massive innovations in, in heart medicine, haven't there been, over the last century, let's say. So to, why don't you talk us through some of the big achievements in terms of heart medicine uh, in, in the, the modern period? Well, the 20th century was a very prodigious century in our advancing the understanding of and treatment of heart disease. At the very beginning of the 20th century, we were just first understanding what a heart attack was and how it happened. But of course, at that time, the only treatment was bed rest, morphine, and a priest. But by the end of the century, we had coronary catheterizations or angiograms. We had coronary bypass surgeries. We had catheter-based balloon angioplasties and stents to treat people emergently during heart attacks to restore blood flow and save heart muscle. We had pacemakers and defibrillators developed, heart assist device to help poorly functioning hearts until they would get better. We have heart transplants. We have mechanical artificial hearts. And this was all in the 20th century alone. So an amazing century with regards to understanding and treating the heart. What's more amazing is what's in store for us in the 21st century. Well, okay, we'll talk about that definitely at the end. But just on what's happened so far, is to what extent is there a distinction uh, on gender? Because we associate, you know, heart disease with men mainly, don't we? And or is that wrong, actually? We associate heart disease with men, but women are as likely to die of heart disease as men. They just do it later in life. Um, heart disease is the major cause of death in women. In fact, in the United States since 1987, more women die every year of heart attacks than men. And I'd note that 10 times more women die of heart attacks than breast cancer although the focus in women tends to be on cancer and not on heart disease. And in fact, women do not do well when they go on to have a heart attack. They're older. Their presentations tend to be more atypical. They don't have the classic crushing pain in the chest. So they make it to the hospital later because they're having pain in their neck or their jaw or their back, or they're just extremely short of breath or nauseated. So once they get there, the damage has already been done. As far as prevention, it turns out physicians are less likely to talk to women compared to men with regards to risk factor prevention and treatment for heart disease. Yeah. So when you look back at the 20th century, there was medical advances, obviously, in many, many fields. But could, could you claim that cardiology was the biggest life prolonger, the biggest lifesaver? Or would it be cancer treatment or other there must be some very sort of specific areas where there have been massive advances. But in terms of uh, large numbers of people, could cardiology claim to be the, the most impressive and effective branch of medicine? Well, during the 20th century, obviously, uh, life expectancy increased uh, significantly. I think a lot of this was uh, sanitation, the introduction of antibiotics, people lived longer, and as a result, heart disease and cancers actually increased in frequency, did not decrease. With the prevention efforts as far as high blood pressure, smoking, high cholesterol, uh, the treatments we've developed to help people survive heart attacks, survival has certainly gone up, especially since the 1950s and 60s, where smoking uh, was the biggest uh, factor affecting heart disease. Heart disease still remains the number one killer of us all worldwide. So we probably because of advances in cardiology, increase the number of people who are having heart disease. 
but then we were able to start bringing this down. But still, if you take all cardiovascular disease deaths, it's still higher than all cancers combined. And let's talk about the future then. Where do you see the big advances being made? There's a couple areas, uh, gene-informed therapy or per- gene-informed personalized prevention, where small differences in our gen- genetic makeup can help us determine what diseases people are at risk for and what medicines uh, would their diseases respond to. Uh, an example of that is uh, recently at the University of Michigan, physician scientists inserted uh, genetically modified cells into the liver of a 29-year-old woman who had had a heart attack at 16 because her cholesterol levels were high because her liver could not remove cholesterol from the blood. And they inserted a gene into liver cells to help reduce cholesterol levels in her body. So that's gene-informed therapy. There's also genetic therapy where they're actually inducing human heart muscle to regrow. So unlike salamanders, humans can't regenerate lost heart muscle. But if you insert stem cells, for instance, into the heart, uh, as was recently presented in a paper in the Journal of American College of Cardiology, these stem cells can turn into actively contracting heart muscle cells, and you can improve heart function in people post-heart attack or in people who have a heart failure with decreased heart function. 3D technology, where we can actually grow heart tissue on scaffolding from stem cells, uh, insert this onto the heart surface and improve heart function. These experiments are being done in rodents right now, but are successful. They have not yet been done in humans. Better yet, why not take a whole heart, say a pig heart, and remove all of the cells and just keep the skeletal scaffold and the heart valves and the veins and then grow one's heart muscle cells onto that scaffolding and create a personalized heart for that person who has a broken heart. Another interesting area are nanobots or cell-sized robots, which could be released through a catheter into a cell and help chew through a clot in acute heart attack to allow perfusion of blood sooner and protection of that muscle downstream before it dies. Uh, Another area is biologic pacemakers. So instead of using a mechanical pacemaker in a person's chest, actually inject cells that act like pacemaker cells into a heart that has a broken intrinsic pacemaker and allow them to have a natural pacemaker reform in their heart. And then probably the the most interesting one of all is xenotransplantation or transplantation of an organ from another animal into a human. We have a huge shortage in the world of human hearts that are available for people who need them for transplant. Um, Over the years, we've already tried to actually put pig hearts, sheep, baboon, chimp hearts into people unsuccessfully. But there was uh, recently in the news a attempt uh, with a pig heart where they genetically modified 10 of the genes in the cell to prevent an immune uh, response, which is the reason why hearts fail um, when you place one into another person uh, from another animal. And the person who received it, a gentleman, actually survived two months with that pig heart in his body. So That's amazing. When, where, where, where and when was that? 
Uh, that was less than a year ago uh, in the United States. Wow. What are the ethical issues associated with that? Well, that's interesting. We now consider putting a human heart in another person as a routine thing. We morally don't even think twice about it. Although when it first happened back in the 1960s, people were horrified. And you can imagine what our ancestors before that would have thought. But that's become quite routine. And I guess if uh, you're given a choice of dying or receiving a heart from another animal to survive, you're probably going to choose that animal heart. What about if, if the heart is just a pump? I mean, you said it's more than that in some ways, but you know, if the crucial physiological function is, is a pump, can't you just put a pump in? I mean, we've got artificial hips and presumably you could make a pump. We actually have them. We have mechanical artificial hearts. There's people who are not transplant candidates who received these hearts and uh, they have survived uh, sometimes years with them. And, you know, as technology improves, it may get to the point where we're able to put mechanical hearts in people and not need uh, animal hearts. Has there been any study of what that group with uh, mechanical hearts, what effect it's had on them in terms of uh, all the other things you're talking about, you know, these the connections with the brain yeah. and the behavior and so on, broken hearts. Uh, you know, has, has anyone measured the impact of having a mechanical heart? It's a new area. There's not enough people to really have a study. Uh, I haven't heard of any anecdotal data that would suggest uh, that having a mechanical heart has affected that person as far as their emotions or experiences. Right. So that's, that's quite important, isn't it, in terms of what we were discussing earlier as, as, as to, you know, exactly what the heart does in the body. Agreed. Right. And does that make you think, well, actually, it is more mechanical than, than we might sometimes think? I think uh, when we get enough people who have uh, mechanical artificial hearts, um, we could examine them and see if it does affect things like their emotion, their reasoning, their memory, and that would give us the answer to the question. Just in writing this book, you've, you've obviously yeah, done a huge amount of reading, ancient cultures, history, archaeology. You know, it's, it's, it's really good in that way that it's a very sort of broad-based book. You're drawing source material from everywhere. What, what, what was the most surprising thing to you that you learned? Really just the pervasiveness of the heart and the heart sim uh, symbol throughout history. I mean, if you, if you now think about it and spend the rest of the day noticing where that heart comes into play, whether you're speaking it or seeing it, it, it's everywhere. It's probably the most pervasive symbol in our society. And, and, and when you think of the brain, that, the only way that's sort of graphically represented is, is a thought bubble, isn't it? Which is, 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 not, is not half as powerful. It agreed. And, you know, I still think even today, people still question, you know, what, what holds their life forces? You know, how do they love? Where's their spirituality? And I think a, a physical example of this unsuredness is where do you point to on your body when you say me? You point to your heart. Well, it's been a, a very, very interesting listening to you. And you've done a huge amount of work to put this book together. And we've been the beneficiaries of it. So thank you very much for it. It's not, not a topic. It's not the sort of typical topic we do. But I, I, I'm very glad we did because it, it, it's, it's really helped us you know, understand a bit about this very important uh, organ we've all got. Well, you're quite welcome. And thank you for having me on your program.